0: This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the MomWell Podcast, and today to celebrate our 200th episode, I'm excited to welcome my husband, Fresnel Jossa, co-founder and CFO of MomWell to the show. I talk a lot about how Fresnel and I have created a life that works for us. Fresnel works behind the scenes at MomWell. And he's also a big part of the reason why I'm able to do so much of what I can do. Because not only does he play a valuable role at the company, but he also carries quite a bit of the labor in our home. We've worked really hard to get to where we are now. It's taken countless conversations about mental labor, our own skills and abilities, and what feels right to our family. From handling dinners, to fielding phone calls from schools, to managing appointments, Fresnel has stepped in and been a truly equal partner to me and an equal contributor in our home, something which has then, in turn, freed up my time to allow me to focus on and grow the business. And of course, listeners want to know how on earth we managed to do this, to break away from the default roles we found ourselves in as new parents, and to carve out a life that looked different. Fresnel previously joined us on the 100th episode to share his perspective of my breakdown term breakthrough and my postpartum depression diagnosis. And today, he's here to chat about how we've been able to divide labor fairly in our home. He's spilling all the tea, from what it's been like to be married to a therapist, to how we've navigated my ADHD even before I was diagnosed. We unpack how we've learned to share the labor in our home and the ways we've communicated along the way. And we also wrap up with our biggest tips for listeners who are hoping to shift the load in their home and begin to do things differently. But before we dive in, let's hear our iTunes review of the week. This review comes from Candace Julie, and it's titled, Thank You. I can cry as I'm writing this review because this podcast has walked me through the darkest time of my life. I suffered from postpartum anxiety and depression with my third child that started when he was two months old the guilt I felt every single day for my intrusive thoughts, the anxiety I felt upon waking up every morning, my life felt gloomy. It literally seemed like the sun didn't shine the same. It was as if I was in a shadow. This podcast helped me understand what I was going through physically, chemically, emotionally. It made me feel like I wasn't alone and gave me hope that I would feel better. It helped me give myself grace, and now I'm 15 months postpartum, still learning so much. And there's weeks that the new podcast hit the nail on the head for what I'm going through. I'm so thankful I found this podcast, and I want to mention I found it through attending groups on Postpartum Support International. I always suggest it to any new mom I see struggling, regardless if they've been diagnosed. I want to thank you, Erica. Just hearing your voice in the intro soothes me. Sending love, grace, and healing from Connecticut. Love, Candace. Oh, wow, thank you so much, Candace. I can absolutely relate to your struggle. Postpartum depression was one of the hardest times of my life. I'm so glad that the podcast has helped you through this tough time and that dark shadow feeling is relatable for so many moms. I hope that you're getting the help and support you need and that you feel like the sun is shining a little bit more. And I'm so glad that MomWell has been a part of that. I really appreciate you taking the time to leave a review. And if any of you listening feel the same way, please leave a review and let me know. I take your comments and feedback to heart and lean on my community of moms to decide what to offer, what guests to invite, and what resources to create. Okay, now let's hear my conversation with Fernal Jossa, my husband, co-founder and CFO of MomWell. Has becoming a parent created a strain in your relationship? If so, you are far from alone. In fact, 67% of parents report a decline in satisfaction in their relationship during the first three years of baby's life. Parenthood brings new responsibilities, new stresses, and new potential sources of conflict. You might find yourself trying to cope with an imbalance in household labor, or feeling unseen, unheard, and unappreciated. When your needs aren't being met, it can lead to a lack of intimacy and an increase in resentment. And when you start to feel resentful, it often becomes even more difficult to connect and communicate with your partner, creating a vicious cycle. If you're finding yourself feeling resentful, frustrated, or angry with your partner, talking to a specialized therapist who understands this adjustment can help. Mom Therapist will help you work through your resentment, understand your emotions, help you set boundaries, communicate your needs, and help you explore what's really going on underneath your frustration. We provide virtual therapy support across Canada and are now serving 25 states in the US. Ready to learn more? Head to momwell.com slash booking to set up a free 15-minute virtual consultation. That's momwell.com slash booking. Welcome to the Momwell Podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist, and founder of Momwell, Erica Jossa. At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at Wall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Hi, husband. (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast. For those who don't know you, your name is Fresnel, and thanks for joining us today.
1: My pleasure.
0: (laughs) I'm like, did you have a choice?
2: Two years later.
0: Yeah, we had you on to celebrate our 100th episode, where at that time, a lot of the questions that came in were about determining that I had postpartum depression and anxiety, and how you supported me through that, how that impacted you and our family, what treatment I sought, and how you supported me in that. So a lot of that story is in that 100th episode talking about those pieces, but I asked the community because they knew you were coming back today, and I have a list of questions for you. How are you feeling about that? I'm I'm so excited to have you here. Um,
2: happy to be back. <laughs> Does that sound sincere? <laughs> Do you think they'll buy it?
0: <laughs> Is this a hostage situation? Raise your hand if you need some
2: help. <laughs> no, I'm happy to be back. As you say, this seems to happen once every two years. So. We'll see what the next set of questions are. That being said, I'll give the same disclaimer that I gave last time, mm. which is that you typically have experts in their field that show up and, you know, give insights and essentially people are at the top of the game. <laughs> and then there's me. <laughs> so they can feel free to put the pens down. There won't be any need for note-taking. And uh, yeah, I'll share as best I can based on my experiences. I can speak for everybody else, but I can share what my thoughts and experience and insights are, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that it's really interesting for people to come sort of behind the curtain because they see me on this platform, they see me on social, hear me on the podcast, and I share a lot about myself and my journey. I share minimally about the kids, and you know we're conscious about how much we share about them for their own you know, like autonomy and confidentiality. And then you're really behind the scenes because you're quite private. You're not even on social media. You do listen to the podcast because you take in a lot of different podcasts. But I think that there is a lot of curiosity around our dynamic and how we've navigated some of the important topics that we talk about on the show quite often. That's fair. So with that being said, Are you ready to dive in? We're going to get to it. Sounds good. Okay, so let's like ease our way and let's start with like bottom of the rung ladder ease and we'll like maybe work our way up to the more like hot take topics. Why don't we do it that way? One that I feel like you probably get asked a lot when you tell people that you're married to a therapist is what is it like being married to a maternal mental health therapist or a therapist, generally speaking? Because I know that when I go out and I introduce myself to people before I was founder and CEO, it was a different sort of conversation and interaction. And people would be like, oh, I better stop talking now. Like you're gonna analyze the things that I say. So people are curious what it's like being married to a therapist.
2: I vaguely recall a similar question being asked in the first episode. And my answer hasn't changed. Okay, let me take a step back. It's not as if I feel that you are analyzing me and my answers and, you know, <laughs> every one of my actions. So I can speak what every therapist is like. But in our case, to me, it just feels like having a normal, irregular conversation. So I don't see any downsides because that's usually the question, right? What are the downsides mm. of being Married to a therapist, right? Because you think that the person is analyzing your every move. That's not the case. At least that's not the way I feel. It might be in your <laughs> mind what you're doing, but I'm not aware of that. So, from my perspective, there's no downside, but there are a lot of upsides. For one, I don't have to pay for therapy. So that <laughs> helps. <laughs> and when you have kids, you need therapy. But seriously, Because of your background and your knowledge and, you know, the depth that you went to to acquire that knowledge and all the studying that you're always doing, you have a lot of the answers, which to me, I find very helpful. Before specializing in maternal mental health, you were a marriage and family therapist. That was your specialty. And uh, so it was great to have relationship conversations, to set up the marriage on a strong foundation because you know what works and what doesn't based on research, based on studies, based on experience, based on all of the above. Mm. And now that you are specializing in maternal mental health, and as a result, you know a lot about children and essentially what it takes Mm. to raise them. And I'm not sure I have the right wording for it, but... The developmental stages, Mm -hmm. you know a lot about what's expected at that age, what's reasonable at that age. So I find myself leaning a lot on your knowledge for all those questions. So to me, it's a benefit. I'd be curious to know if from your perspective, because I can see how there would be a case that if you know all of that, then I don't need to know it as well. And I may be leaning on your knowledge a little bit more, Mm -hmm. which could, in some cases, be frustrating? Like, why don't you know this kind of thing? I'd be curious to hear your perspective.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because a conversation recently aired on the podcast between Aaron and Stephen Mitchell, a couple about being the default parent. And in their episode, they talked about one of the things that enrages the default parent is being the one who... Does all of the research and the growth and the development from a parenting perspective. So it's a weird occupational hazard, I feel like, as a therapist, where I have this abundance of information, probably more than the average person would have about their child, their development, relational, attachment issues, like all the things. And so it makes me probably hyper aware, maybe even hypersensitive to. How we handle different situations with the kids. And it's interesting because when we're talking parenting styles, we're talking an intersection of like culture and, you know, information and default parent research and temperament and personality and many layers in there, I feel like. So it's not as simple as just the knowledge that we have. Like I think we're different people and we parent the kids differently, which is healthy for them and it's important for them. But I think that we've had to do work in picking apart, okay, like what is the standard from a developmental milestone perspective that should be the default norm and standard of the home? And what is an Erica preference? And I've had to check myself on that. And we've had lots of you know, in-depth conversations about that because we come from different upbringings. We are blending cultures. We're blending, you know, an interracial home. And I've had to do a lot of listening and learning. And there's questions about that as well, like what that is like. So I think that for me, having too much knowledge sometimes can make me more hyper aware, which probably makes me more anxious around how things are handled with the kids, and makes me probably want to gatekeep those behaviors more just because I have like too much information in that area. So in that way, I think that being married to a therapist, generally speaking, whatever their niche is, it's probably a similar thing. Like I speak with some of my therapist girlfriends who it's like the same in their parenting and partnering relationships in their family, because it's just something that we're like overexposed to. Or we work with children and family before I niche down in internal mental health and saw like sort of the flip side or like down the road kind of challenges that can occur. So it's one of those, you know, occupational hazards at times, I think.
2: So I agree. From my perspective, again, having seen what can happen down the road, you want to make sure that you don't make it's tricky because I don't want to say don't make mistakes because everybody makes mistakes, right? But there are some proven ways Mm -hmm. that are better than others, or at least there are some ways that are known to be disruptive, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: known to have negative long-term consequences. So just generally speaking, if you know somebody is very knowledgeable in a particular area and knowing the abundance of information that we have out there Mm -hmm. and how many contradictory information there is, I tend to lean and ask a professional. Mm -hmm. So if I have car trouble, I will probably go to the mechanic because the mechanic knows about cars. Similarly, when we're talking about the kids, when we're talking about development, when we're talking about discipline or anything else related to the kids, I would ask you, which again, the flip side is I can see how from your perspective, you would feel like, oh, you're the default parent, you know, like, yeah, you may want me to do more of the research, but uh means hours and hours of going down the rabbit hole just to realize that way this contradicts with this, this contradicts with this. So it may make for better conversations. Both of us are strapped for time. So usually I'd simply ask you what, does the research say about ABC? Mm -hmm. What do you know about XYZ? And then we get the summary version and move on from there and make decisions based on that.
0: Yeah, the default parent brings an interesting element into this conversation because it makes me wonder what it would be like if the roles were reversed. If you were the therapist and I was the mom, would the default questioning still sit with me because I hold the maternal knowledge or the, you know, real emotional knowledge when it comes to the kids and, and, you know, their feelings or however, because there is a piece of this here that is societal, I think, where women are seen as the nurturers, seen as the caregivers, seen as more of the experts in this role. And we're talking like I have a degree in working with, you know, children and families. So that is different and and I understand what you're saying. But I think that if we back it out to just like the every mom that's listening right now, they probably can relate to some of what you're saying because I think we naturally get pigeonholed or sort of just fall into this role by default where because we have been the caregiver whether on leave or at home or been defaulted in just to being coordinating the care and all the things we tend to hold the default knowledge and we tend to hold the knowledge of the preferences and what the kids like and what they don't like and what their friends' names are and who's going here and who's going there and all the things, right? And so what happens when we've got a partner who holds all the knowledge, the parenting knowledge, but I'm calling it maternal knowledge because we've acquired that over time and relationship and experience is that it becomes easier for the partner to just default to mom because they are the ones that know. And degree aside, and I can see our dynamic, and there's a lot of things that I default to you on because of your expertise in the house. And we can, we'll get to some of that when we talk about my ADHD diagnosis. But I think that it's a really interesting thing because when we're defaulted into this, And we're seen as the person who is strong in the maternal knowledge or the decision making around the kids, then the partner doesn't feel the need often to do the education and the research to make the decisions. So, an example of this is in my book, we're talking about the invisible load, and we're talking about the cognitive labor that goes into tasks. And she breaks it down. Allison Daminger did a study on cognitive labor, and it's broken down into nine different domains. And there's like finances, decision-making, care work, housework, a bunch of them that I can't recall them all right now. And what she found in the couples that they were studying was that the moms tended to be the ones that went and sourced all the information did all the research, did all the like grunt work. You think of like a paralegal that goes and goes through all the big boxes of information in the office to siphon through and comes up with a Cole's notes of three options of decisions to be made, right? So like, here is what I've siphoned through. Here is all of the stuff I've distilled down to. Here are three options. And then what she found in the study is that actually the decision-making power sat with The husband, if they were in like a male-female partnership, that the husband then held the decision-making power. So the husbands tended to hold the positions of authority, money, and decision-making. And the women tended to do all of this invisible background labor and sort of source this information. And so it's different because we have like an added layer to this dynamic where like I went to school for this and I'm very particular about things. And there's just a different element there for us. But this pattern, I think, rings true for a lot of couples and a lot of families. They're probably listening and thinking, like, I feel that too. Like, that feels similar to me, you know?
2: Yeah, I hear that. I understand that. I have several thoughts. First one, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about being particular about certain things,
1: mm-hmm.
2: as a general rule. I don't want to say default, but essentially the person who's most particular or more specific or feels stronger about certain things is the person we default to or makes the decision mm-hmm. essentially. So again, because you are in the space, I'm pretty easygoing. <laughs> I think most people will agree. I'm pretty easygoing. My bottom line essentially is I've seen, and we've all seen, good and bad influences. Mm-hmm. Right, you see what happens when a kid has been in a negative, whether it's environment, upbringing, who knows? Mm-hmm. And you've seen the flip side. And my bottom line is that I just want the kids to be well, mm-hmm. physically, emotionally, in all aspects. I want them to be good, positive members of society. Right, and. How that happens is not as important to me as the fact that it does happen. I just want them to do well,
1: mm-hmm. to be
2: well. So if you're telling me these are the things that lead to that result, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly okay with that, right? So from our perspective, again, because it's your back, this is the space you live in, you hold a lot of the knowledge. But I would say that you make a lot of the decisions when it comes to that as well. Mm -hmm. Again, because this is your background. Why am I making decisions when you're the one that knows what you're talking about? We will have conversations and I will ask questions and try to understand certain things. But generally speaking, if that's what the science says, Mm -hmm. what am I to say otherwise? Right? So that's the first thing. Now, the second thing is, okay, let's assume that you didn't go to school for that and it was in your background, how would it be then? Nobody knows for sure, but I would like to think that it'll be like everything else, where we split the labor, like we come together, have a series of questions, and split who does research on what, and come back to share the synopsis of our finding and collaboratively make a decision of which path Makes the most sense.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's been an approach with everything else. And I like to think that even when it comes to the kids and how they are raised, it will be the same approach.
0: Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. But with Factor's Delicious, ready to eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. One of the things I get asked a lot is how did you challenge this default caregiver, you know, drowning in keeping house? Because we talk a lot about, or I talk a lot about my story, postpartum, home with three young children looking around just drowning in motherhood, right? And how you and I had a real, I would say like equal split in like household duties and we rotated cooking and meal prep and meal planning and we cleaned together on weekends and we alternated who did things. Like We had a real system before kids where no one person was defaulted into a role, I wouldn't say. But then when we had kids and we entered into parenthood, I feel like that changed, like largely due to my own internalized assumptions about what it meant for me to be a good mom, my own internalized pressure and perfectionism and wanting to do things right and having this romanticized idea or Societal idea of what it meant to be a good mom. And I had to tackle all the feeds in the night waking and exclusively breastfeed and sacrifice everything I could to make sure that this baby was doing okay. And so, in large part, due to my own assumptions. But what happened as we went further into having more and more children is I feel like I carried such a large part of the parenting role because you were the main provider at the time and downtown. And people are curious how we dug ourselves out of that. So before I go into how we started to course correct, do you want to add anything to the synopsis I just gave? Because you might see it differently than I do.
2: So that's all fair. That's all true. From my perspective, there was a trigger to all of that. Because you're right, before the Lord was divided more equally. Mm-hmm. But I think what changed everything is when I started working downtown. And for people who don't know, that meant, uh, because we live, what, an hour and a half to two hours away? An hour and a half, assuming the trains and there's no accident and everything goes well, right? Mm-hmm. So to two hours more routinely. Uh, long story short, that meant I was out the door at 7 a.m., lucky to be back by 7 p.m. So when that's your life and when you're away mm-hmm. for 12 hours a day and you are an hour and a half to two hours away, that means that if there's something at the school.
0: Yeah. Like even daycare, they're sick, they get sent home, whatever. Mm-hmm.
2: Exactly. It's just not really practical to call me. The best I can tell you is, all right, hold on to him. I'll be there in two hours. Yeah. So there is that. Then there's doctor's office and there's a lot of things. And then even breakfast and dinners, right? How is the person that's out the door by seven going to make the breakfast? Or if we wait for me to come back, I guess you, we could have prepped in advance and you know leave it in the fridge and warm it up closer. I guess there mm-hmm. were ways to make it simpler, but in my mind, at least, the main trigger was being downtown and away for 12 hours a day. It meant that practically speaking, my involvement was limited.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then COVID happened, which brutal in many ways. But one of the things that it did for us is all of a sudden I was working from home. And when I'm working from home, I'm able and more available to take care and participate in some of those tasks. Mm-hmm. At least that was my view on it. And yes, there had to be conversations, right? But I find it's easier to have a conversation when... There is an external trigger that results in us reshuffling the cards, right? It's not necessarily, and I'm not saying it's the case for us, but I can see how, let's say in another relationship or in, um, for some other people, right? If somebody is struggling because they're doing everything, coming to the partner and having that conversation that, hey, i I'm having a hard time could be difficult and you can speak more as to how to do it. But... Having an external trigger, which is going back to work, which is whatever happens, it's essentially saying, hey, this other thing changed everything, and now we have to adapt. How do we rebalance things to adapt, right? It's not me putting things on you. It's this external thing that's coming and making both of us Mm -hmm. readjust. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense?
0: Well, I think you bring up a really important point that it's not going to be 50-50, All the time, if ever, you know, like every season that we're in, I feel like we're on this scale where the ball kind of rolls back and forth to who is carrying more or who is more defaulted if the school calls or, you know, things happen. But I will say that if I were to do it again, I would have set different boundaries with myself and therefore with you because I wouldn't have assumed everything on myself. So I think we would have learned that the situation was not sustainable earlier on because I would have been like, you're getting up at night, which you did get up a lot at night. But I mean, like I would have combo fed and you would have routinely been on bottle duty at nighttime instead of me being always defaulted to feeding or would have – Divided out the labor in a different way or made the invisible tasks more visible made you the primary assign at the school So you're dealing with all the coordinating of the care with the daycare in the school like you do now, right? So I would have had different expectations of you And set different boundaries and I think that the catalyst for how Unmanageable the situation was probably would have happened sooner Because you would have been more privy to how just utterly chaotic everything was, right? Because when you're gone 12-hour days, really in your socialized role to provide for the family and take care and like really doing a duty to the family from all of our perspective, right, that is serving the family and providing and doing the things that we need, but it also didn't allow the insight into what was happening in the house in the 12 hours that you were gone unless I was sending you videos or like I was keeping you updated. But, you know, and so when you came home in COVID, it was a whole other experience, I would say, where now there was an option to who could handle the situation because I wasn't just defaulted due to the distance, right? So now it started to become more of a conversation of like, why am I doing this? Or why are you doing that? And started to become curious and evaluate why we were in the patterns that we were in. And I don't think any one moment or one conversation or one thing sort of shifted the scale for us. I think that it was a lot of conversations, a lot of daily conversations, open communication, being honest about where we were at and what we were carrying. I feel like I did a lot of learning and evolving in what I thought motherhood should look like for me, which I feel like inherently changed what fatherhood should look like for you, like sort of as a result. But I think it was a gradual reevaluating of the things that we were carrying.
2: That's fair. And um- again, that whole situational piece for me being more present gave, as you said, more options. All of a sudden, you see everything that's happening and all that you're carrying. And because I'm around and I can say, how about I take care of that? Or in some cases, you say, why don't you take care of this Mm -hmm. moving forward, right? But first, you have to see it, right? And, And that's the thing about the invisible law that you refer to. If only one person is aware of it, Acknowledgement or seeing it is the first step, Mm -hmm. essentially. And I was able to see what was visible to me, right? I know that there's a lot more in your mind that you talk about the clothes example, right? Which I wouldn't have seen until you bring it to my attention and discuss it. I can say, okay, all right, now that I'm aware, how are we going to balance it moving forward? So it sounds cliche, but my bottom line is, Communication, conversations, that's how we managed to move forward.
0: Yeah, you bring up an important part about the load where in those early days, I didn't even realize I was carrying it. And this is the thing with the invisible load. And I talk about this and use this story in the book and use some of our examples where I know I'm carrying it. I'm drowning. And I remember even like each time I got pregnant being like joyful, but also like, oh shit, like I know what this means for me right? Like there was like, maybe not equal parts dread and excitement, but there was for sure some dread. So I'm like, oh no, I know what I'm getting myself into because I knew the feeling of the invisible load. I knew what it felt like to carry it, but I didn't know or have the language to describe it. And if I don't even know I'm carrying it and can't, you know, put words to it for myself, how can I put words to it to explain it to you and ask you to own this side of it, right? So I, like, I distinctly remember, and I talk about this example in the book and all the time where we came up with a system for laundry because in my mind, doing the laundry and leaving it in the washer, not getting into the dryer, you know, I'm the worst for that. And so we came up with a system where you would do this part of it and then I would fold it and put it away. And three young children and spit ups and blowouts and wet sheets and laundry, clean laundry just piling up after each wash. You saw when the laundry needed to be washed, when it needed to be dried. So we always had clean laundry. But my role was to fold the laundry and put it away. And on the surface, that's a very easy task objectively, right, to do. And I'm like, Going by this laundry pile every day, or like you might give a nudge and be like, "Hey, like, just gonna add another basket on here, I guess." Like, it will, I this is where I'm gonna put it, and me walking by it every day, being like, "I am a ambitious a type personality, and this laundry pile is gonna be the thing that you know proves that I'm not doing a good enough job, or makes me feel like incompetent in some way, or whatever's like talking back to me, and like." Telling me how I'm not keeping up and doing the things that I need to do. And instead of moving into shame one day, because what happens is when we aren't living up to these societal norms, we often go internal and blame ourselves because, of course, we must be flawed in some way if we can't keep up with this ideal we've been given, which is sarcastic and totally not true. It's unrealistic from the get go. But instead of like, shaming myself and being like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do it? This is so easy for everybody else. Everybody else is doing it. It's like, why? Why am I struggling so much with this? Like, why? Just become curious for a moment. And I remember being like, because it's the changeover of a season. So in order to fold that laundry, folding's not the problem. In order to put it away, I have to go through all three kids' dressers, I have to sift through their summer clothes to see what fits and what doesn't and rotate all the clothes like sort of down the size for each of the boys because they just rotate into the next kid's size. I needed to make sure that they all had fall clothes in the sizes that fit them. And that meant creating a shopping list, sourcing the new clothing items. And all of these things were what sat underneath that one seemingly easy or routine task. And I remember being able to somehow roughly communicate that to you at that time, because I think that maybe you even asked me why. I don't remember what the catalyst was to like the getting to see the invisible load. We call it in the book, the aha moment where it was just like, all of a sudden I could see all the pieces that were connected to it. And once I saw it, I was like, well, of course, this is a paralyzing task. Let's like try and chunk out in hours the amount of time this would take me, right? And we're not even just like talking time to fold and put away. We're talking time to go to the store and to shop, time to like all the things. And so really, ultimately, I remember talking with you about that, about being able to carve out a good chunk of time, whether it was create a list for you to get the clothes or buy the things online. And we came up with some sort of system to divide out some of that. Because once you saw it and I saw it, it was like, yeah, of course, we need to figure this out. And there was never any resistance from you in doing that. But until I have that aha moment or moment for myself, you're just looking at the laundry. I'm just looking at the laundry. We're like, why is this laundry still here? You know. And it's really hard for us to communicate or work as a team around that when it's invisible to both of us still.
2: Yeah, that's also my recollection. I don't remember what the catalyst was. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was that time or another time. Okay, so we do this thing where if something is clearly not working, we would inquire about that. My recollection vaguely, and I'm not sure if it was that time or another time, was the laundry was piling up. And at some point, essentially, I asked, would you like me to do that?
1: Mm.
2: Because clearly you were too busy, there was too much going on, or whatever that was it was atypical Mm -hmm. so when you see something that's atypical you usually inquire about it and it could just be oh this week you're particularly busy so it's going to happen next week or it could be something deeper but you don't know until you ask Mm -hmm. so we had a conversation whether it still made sense Mm -hmm. to do it the way we've always done it and again i don't recall if it's that time or another but essentially we decided that I'll continue doing the washing and the drying and all those different things, and you'll continue doing the folding. The folding wasn't the problem, it's everything else, yeah. right? So that opened the door for that conversation. And I don't even recall exactly what were the next steps or how we broke it down, but we've managed to figure a way to tackle what was the actual real problem so that everything can go back in place, not just the folding, but like the new clothes and the change of season and everything that goes Mm. with that. So several thoughts off the top of my head is that, A, communicating what the real task list is, not just the outcome, right? We could decide, we're having people over. For now, you cook, I, Erica, will clean, right? Or whatever the case is. Not realizing that those may not be equal tasks, because cooking might involve way more and might take you like 12 hours by the time you go source all the ingredients and everything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas cleaning might be easier or harder, I don't know. But essentially not just the outcome, but actually what's involved in those tasks so that it can be balanced out and having a regular check-in to see if things are still working. Because that's what allowed us to move forward in the end is having that conversation to say, hey, is this still working? And yes, it is, but there's this additional thing. Okay, let's address this additional thing, right? That doesn't mean the system is broken. It just means that we have to be mindful of change of seasons because, you know, once every three months, Mm -hmm. this is going to come up.
0: Yeah, you bring up a really important point. I feel like you should just write my book and do these talks for me because the next step after we make the load visible is making sure that we're clearly defining the problem. And this is, I think, an area where we really excel. And this is an area where I want to say 90% of couples get stuck. And this has been a real difference maker for us is we don't ever shift into my partner is the problem. We always can step back and say, okay, this is maybe out of the norm or we give the benefit of the doubt. We can see that there are a lot of other possibilities aside from my partner's trying to slight me and being disrespectful right now. And we can think through why, you know, it may have gotten this way or give the benefit of the doubt. And then we approach each other for a conversation about it to see what is wrong or how we can figure it out without coming in guns blazing. Like you're not holding up your side of the bargain and we're not keeping score and we're not accusatory and we're not, you know, coming in hot about these things. And there's a couple of reasons why that is one You are very proactive in your problem solving. So I do remember you asking about the laundry. And I remember this conversation came up on a few different occasions in different seasons of life where it's like, okay, this is how we divided this task or this system. Like we didn't use the word system at the time, but like this is what we had agreed on. And it's okay if things have changed. We just need to agree that I will do the folding and put it away if that's what needs to be done. And I'll do it. I don't have a problem with that. I don't want to be fishing, you know, wrinkly t-shirts or socks out of the basket in the morning. So if it's something that I need to do, I'll take that on. You do something else. Right. And it was always trying to find a solution, trying to reevaluate what was happening in a respectful tone. And when we don't realize that it's the system or the tasks or the pressures or the assumptions or, you know, these societal norms and, and things at play, and we assume that it's our partner, then we start to get into really unhealthy and unhelpful forms of communicating and patterns of behavior in our relationship. Because if I came at you like you are the problem, You're going to get defensive with me. You're not going to feel motivated to want to support me in the things I'm struggling with if I'm saying that you're the reason why I'm struggling. And then we get in a really resentful, difficult place. And I don't know that we ever have gotten to that place because of like a mutual respect and regard that we have for each other and a baseline assumption that You are not doing this to me, right? Like if this is happening, it's for a reason that maybe I don't see, but it is not on purpose just to tick me off or because you think that I'm going to handle it. Like there must be a reason why this is happening. And I think that's been really helpful and important for us. There's just such a mutual respect there, I would say. I
2: would agree. And I'm not sure what to add to that because yes, I agree, that's the foundation. The foundation is respecting your partner, trusting your partner, and knowing that you are in this together. You are not on opposite side of the table, you are on the same side of the table. Mm-hmm. And as we go through life, it's about figuring things out and adjusting and, you know, there's going to be seasons, times where I'll do more, times where you'll do more, but hey, we are in this together. Something else that comes to mind, and I know you wanted to talk about the ADHD part, is understanding, okay, accepting that we are not the same person,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: right? And realizing or being aware of your partner's strengths. I don't want to say weaknesses, but like there are things that you are very good at. And I'm thankful for that because they might be my weakness or it might be that's the way Erica's brain works. Or, so it's never a matter of, oh, she's doing this to upset me or to spite me or to anything. It's just that's the way her brain works and her brain working this way makes her really good at certain things, mm-hmm. right? So it comes with the territory more or less. And yeah, just accepting that and adjusting accordingly.
0: Go to ZocDoc.com slash momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Zocdoc.com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirina Reem Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create all the rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection. A course designed to be your go to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo Rage20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code RAGE20. As the one who is the refiller of the home, like you as the refiller of the home, I can see how if I don't fill something up behind me, it could be anger inducing. Do you know what I mean? Because you will see things and monitor how full they are. And I'm talking like soaps and toilet paper and paper towel and all the household things, right? Like groceries, although we do share, like if we use it, we put it on the list and we share those responsibilities. But I can see how if you come across something and it's empty, it'd be like, oh, come on. Cause that's just something that you see really well. And as somebody with ADHD, I swear to God, I do not see that it is empty until I'm trying to squeeze my body soap out of (laughs) the container and nothing is coming out. Like Or the gas tank, for example. I'm like, a quarter of a tank is plenty of gas. And you're like, this needs to be filled up. This is (laughs) almost empty, right? And I think this is where us understanding and having conversations about our strengths and what we struggle with more has been really helpful. And I do want to asterisk and sort of a caveat that Sometimes strengths or priorities are socialized by gender. So for example, if somebody shows up, knocks on the door and comes in the front entryway of the house and the house is a disaster, you are not going to be held accountable or be judged for the state of the home because you are not the mom of the house, right? So sometimes the house being kept a particular way Feels more important or like a priority to me. This is actually not true because you're probably more particular than I am. But like socially speaking, you know, that is going to fall on me. Just like if somebody goes by and sees the lawn, they might be like, oh, your husband's not doing whatever. You know what I mean? And it's silly and it's gendered. And, you know, any woman can cut a lawn as well. But what it does is it shapes strengths and priorities in us because it's been what is expected of us. I am not naturally a better cook or a better cleaner than any male counterpart and in fact when male counterparts tend to do those jobs they get Michelin stars and get paid for them and women just do it for free to support their families so there is a piece here where some of our strengths are socialized, some of our priorities are rooted in social norms. I'm just putting that piece out there but I feel like an our home <laughs> the social norms are kind of reversed in that I am more forgetful. I don't refill. I am sort of like absent-minded. I come by it honestly as we learn that I have ADHD. And so when we talked about dividing things according to our strengths, you have assumed being the refiller of the things because it's just, I'm sure it probably got to a point where it was too frustrating (laughs) to rely on me to do it. And you sort of assumed that role. But on the flip side of that, because working with the kids through their tantrums or their big feelings is something that I am well equipped to do and I'm trained in, I'm happy to hold that role. And I want to hold that role. I think I'm more equipped to hold that role. And it's okay to have preferences in what we hold on to in terms of the care and the home and the load, as long as we're not defaulted and assumed into it. And as long as we aren't holding all of the things, Right. And so I think that we've had a lot of conversations about, okay, like based on your personality, I joke about the Tetris thing of the dishwasher, but like, I will just throw things in the dishwasher. I don't care. They come out wet and washed and clean. doesn't matter to me where you're more particular and will take time to situate things in a certain way. And so that's sort of one of the domains that you own. And if I do it, I do it. There's a standard that things actually can be, washed, but it's not going to be the way you do it, and vice versa, like you talking the kids through big feelings is not going to be the way that I do it, you know?
2: Yeah, that's true. That's correct. And yeah, strengths, weaknesses, the way the brain works. And to me, bottom line is accepting that each person has their strengths, their weaknesses, their brain works a particular way. And it's interesting because let me take a step back. You mention forgetfulness, right? You mentioned, okay, maybe the way I should phrase it is I am more cautious. I'm more slow and meticulous about certain tasks mm-hmm. and where you are more free and you just want to get the job done, yeah, essentially. So to me, I find those to be complimentary because we can't have two meticulous people. Mm-hmm. Nothing ever gets done. And you can have two, People that just like go out there and just gun blazing. Not that you do that, but that's how things break, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. So you need the balance of the two. And the example that comes to mind is in the company. There's, well, A, there's a topic of maternal mental health, which is much better suited to discuss and address than I am. Mm. But generally speaking, I think, and I told you that in the past, that you make a better CEO than I would
1: Mm.
2: because you keep the pace up because you have the goal, you have the vision, you have the strategy, and you essentially keep it moving. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm meticulous, right? So I'll essentially be saying, okay, well, we need to address this. Uh, what do the lawyers think about this? What does the accountant think about this? What does this? What does that? And I'll do a whole bunch of research. And you can see that if I am leading the charge, then it's, the pace is going to be much slower than if you are leading the charge and you leading the charge allows us to move at a good pace, whereas the decisions are being made quickly, but let's say I gather the information and bring it back, right? So Mm -hmm. we get to do a balance of the two, whereas you lead the charge and decide, okay, we're going in this direction, right? And I'll say, all right, here are the questions that we need answer. Do research, but I'm not taking... I don't know, two weeks to do the research. I know I have three days mm-hmm. to do the research, right? So the research is getting done and 90% of it is going to be done, but you keep the pace moving. Whereas my default would be waiting for the 100% to be known mm-hmm. before making a decision. With 80, 90%, frankly, you have enough information to make that decision. And it's because you keep up the pace, right? And it's because your brain works differently than mine. So understanding the positive, you can't at nighttime, when I'm refilling things or when I'm putting the dishwasher on, be upset. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Good and bad. That's just the way it is. And it's not anybody's fault. It's not a person's fault. It's just, okay, knowing that this is the reality, how do we adjust? How do we plan? Mm-hmm. And who does what?
0: Yeah, it makes me think about the areas where I get stuck because... Finding out that I had ADHD at what, like 34 years old? And a lot of people ask how I found out. It's so interesting because being a therapist and working with families that had ADHD for a long time, it was mostly boys who got identified. And it was a lot of young boys I worked with. So I knew how to identify it in boys. And in our boys, I, I identified it. And going through the process of having them evaluated and tracking and wondering and researching realizing that, hey, that ADHD came from somewhere and it certainly was not you. (laughs) You're as like straight-laced as they come. So, you know, it really started me on a path to understand, well, what does the the female-girl equivalent look like? Because if we're so underdiagnosed and under recognized, we're not getting often identified and diagnosed and treated until motherhood. Motherhood is often a catalyst or having one of our own children evaluated then realizing are the catalyst because women fall through the cracks so getting that diagnosis and understanding my strengths and how my brain works and then where i struggle has allowed us to open up new conversations where for example now when it comes to changing over the clothes or whatever i can sprint through a task like set a timer for 45 to five minutes and be like i'm going to have this done in 45 minutes What I struggle with then is, let's say I go through all the clothes, I purge it. Actually, this is true of the fall purge we just did because the pile is sitting in the library right now, but we're giving it to a friend of ours. But what I would do and say to you is, I have the plan and power and motivation and like capacity to do this whole blitz of all the clothes, all the turnover, all the research, all the clothes, finding all the things. What I would rather, you know pull out my hair then do is put this in a box in the trunk of my car and drive it to the Goodwill or to the donation store. Like that is something I just cannot work up the motivation to do. And so you would take it over from there. And like we work in a way because you are more methodical. You are like duty oriented. You don't have to feel a certain way in order to do something like you just do it. So for you, that's like, yeah, okay, I'll just throw it in the trunk and go drop it off or get rid of it. Right? So understanding yourself and becoming curious about yourself as a person, what your strengths are and how your system or patterns in your home are functioning are so helpful, but we can't get to that place until we shift out of thinking that we are the problem and harping on ourselves and blaming ourselves. Cause I could still be walking by every pile saying I'm not good enough. And that's why I'm not keeping up with these things in the home. Right. And so I think that seeing the load, well, seeing that you're not the problem, identifying the problem, seeing the load, and then also having a willing partner is a really big part of this. And I think that this is where we'll wrap up. There was so much more on the list for us to get to, but we're running out of time, is having a willing partner. One of the things I hear so often in the community and from moms is that their partner will enter a room and say, what can I help you with? Or they're in this like managerial role where they like delegate and you know, they want their partner to like take initiative and just come in, roll up their sleeves and like all hands on deck kind of thing. And I would say that you definitely do that. And I'm still kind of like puzzled where that comes from or how that happens because you were raised in a culture that had very traditional gender norms. So the model that you had for how a home would run is really defaulted traditionally to the woman of the house. So like how you just do that. I'm not sure. But I think that like that situation where you came in about the laundry and said, okay, this isn't working. Do I just, should I assume this role or what what needs to happen here? You know, a lot of partners don't do because they are still running under the default that mom should be the one to figure out the system to fix it. And that they don't have the same ownership in the task that mom has over the task because by default, The mother is now responsible. So I think that having a partner who is willing to have conversations to challenge these norms and assume these responsibilities, and I think that a lot of partners are, they just haven't had these conversations at great length like we have had.
2: So I agree. I don't know how to address it if the partner is not willing to step up. That I don't know how to address, but... If the partner is willing, and I realize it's not fair to the mom, but the only way forward, at least in my experience, is to have those conversations. Yes, it's additional labor to sit down and show this is everything that I'm doing. And this is why I need help. This is what I need you to do. And, you know, which I I understand feels like managing and delegating, but it's one of those like where you have the conversation and, You're saying, all right, well, any questions? No, all right, you own this. And stepping away, because one of the things that we've done is if I own something, then I'm doing it my way. Mm -hmm. I can seek your feedback and your input as to how you used to do it and stuff like that. But at some point, if I'm owning it, it's going to be done my way, right? And Mm -hmm. that's just the the reality Mm -hmm. of the situation. So yeah, it's the bottom line.
0: Well, and that's the crux of my book releasing the motherload is that and the, and this is totally not a commercial for the book it comes out in april so we're just it's just really relevant to the conversation is that we often will divide out and have these conversations i say we as in like moms with their partners and then fall back into default patterns and reassume the role because our worth in motherhood is woven into these care and household tasks and so until we do some of the work to figure out how to unweave and reevaluate motherhood for ourselves, and measure ourselves by something different than checking all of these, you know, household and care work tasks off. We're going to reassume the role every time because we want it to be done a certain way. And it's a reflection of us and all of these things. So in order for me to really step away and be like, Hey, you have ownership of the kid's food and dinner and like all the things I had to really be like, this has nothing to do with me. Like I had to really work through letting go and not having my perfectionism and my standards govern how you go about doing that. That doesn't mean that we don't set a standard. That doesn't mean that we don't have a conversation where there's a functional standard for the house. We're not going to have pizza every single night of the week. Although there are weeks where we have more pizza than others because of hockey and life and whatever, but there is still like a functional standard, but I'm not going to impose my way of doing it. And what I think is right. And my perfectionism onto you. And the book dives into a lot of that because I do think that sometimes couples will have these productive conversations or they use the fair play cards, which are such a great tool They divide things up, but then fall back into default patterns thinking again, why? And then fall right back into this. My partner is the problem and we're back in the whole cycle again, right? So if we can leave you with a few things for those of you listening to sort of challenge you in this. If there is two pieces, at least that are most important to me, and for now you can think about maybe your piece or two to leave people with, is number one, I think that we have to stop assuming that if we aren't able to carry it all and do it all as mothers and as women, that we are the problem and we have to become curious about why this is actually happening beyond us. We are not flawed. We are not failing. It's not us not being able to manage it. There's other things happening here, and and what are they? And second, I would say the other big thing for me is giving your partner the benefit of the doubt and not assuming that they are the problem, correctly defining the problem, whether that's the invisible load, whether that's the default gender norms we've fallen into, whether that is, you know... Maybe the season of life being early postpartum and pressed for time is largely the problem because we're not sleeping and we don't, you know, maybe lack of support and not having enough hands is the problem. Whatever it is, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's likely not your partner and it's the patterns or the communication patterns or whatever other factors are at play. And you have to shift out of that, both of you, in order to have a mutual respect, to work together as a team to actually solve the division of labor problems in the home. And for now, I'm curious what your final thoughts would be.
2: From my perspective, and as cliche as it sounds, it all boils down to open lines of communication and talking it through again. I don't know how to handle it if it turns out that the partner is unwilling to step in and assist and help. But if the two people are not going to make assumptions, whether they're married or, you know, like Mm -hmm. if it's a couple, it's because they love each other and want to support each other, Mm -hmm. right? So accepting that you are in this together and it's not you against your partner, it's the two of you, against the situation, right? And the only way you can win or figure it out and move forward is by having good communication. I played, I used to play team sports. Uh, The bottom line is, again, communication. You can beat a lot of much stronger teams if you communicate, know your role, know your position, work Mm -hmm. together as a team, is usually how you win championships, Mm. (laughs) right? I'm talking about, I'm throwing in a sport analogy there. <laughs> but yeah, it's teamwork, communication, and you are on the same team. The situation, the partner is not the enemy, the situation is. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: how do we move forward from here? That's it. Yeah, <laughs>
0: That's what I got. No, that's great. And listen, Taylor Swift goes to football games. So we watch sports now, just for the record. Just- <laughs> oh
1: my goodness.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, I guess that's a little insight into us and how we divide the load in our home. Honestly, we've never had a conversation talking about it so objectively together before. So it's interesting to reflect on. And let us know if you've got any other questions or want to hear more from now, because I will I will drag him back on here if there's more that you'd like to hear from us. So thank you all for joining us. Thanks for being here, now. Appreciate you taking the time to join us today.
2: My pleasure. (laughs) I was thinking when we started this interview, well, first I was thinking I was going to be in your office. Then it turns out we're doing in my office. So I don't know if there is going to be like a video part of it and they're going to see my Mm -hmm. background or lack thereof. But I guess when they read the book, they'll understand how my brain works (laughs) and why there's no art at all in the office. There's not a single picture. There's nothing. For the past, what, two and a half years we've been here? Yeah. Yeah. I guess I I saw a part in the book that talks about I'm very functional Mm -hmm. and I have no time Mm -hmm. for art. So there's a story there. (laughs) And this is Mm -hmm. evidence. (laughs) That's it. I'm out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. First of all, I want to give a big thank you to Fresnel for coming on and joining me for this episode. He isn't the kind of person who prefers to be public-facing and is pretty private, so it means so much that he's willing to step out of his comfort zone and have this conversation. I can talk all day about my feelings on The Invisible Load and how we've managed to share the labor in our home, but I think it's also important to hear from his perspective and his side of the story as well. What I really wanna stress here is that these changes and this redistribution didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of conversation, a lot of unpacking our own beliefs and assumptions, and a lot of shifting things around, trying different things out, and troubleshooting what wasn't working. And I'm sure that at each new stage our boys enter, we're gonna have more conversations, more shifting, more adjusting, and more reshuffling of labor. But one thing that we've worked really hard not to do is blame each other. We've never viewed each other as the problem. It's had to be the two of us against the problem every stage and season of life, and that's how we've gotten through it. I know that if you're in the weeds right now, that change and redistribution can feel so far out of reach. Maybe you've tried to bring this up with your partner and they haven't heard you. Maybe you're deep in resentment, and you're no longer communicating productively. But I want to encourage you that Fresnel and I weren't born with special communication abilities. We don't have magical strengths that you or your partner are missing. We built these skills both individually and as a couple. It's hard when you don't feel like you have a willing partner, but these skills can be learned. You can get back on the same team. And you can share the labor in your home in a way that feels right. It won't happen overnight. It does take a lot of communication and awareness and self-reflection, but you can get there. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode and what other questions you might have for for Fernal for the next time he joins us. If I can get him to join us again, maybe another 100 episodes from now. Send me a DM or take a minute to leave a review. And if you're at the point where you don't know how to communicate and you're finding yourself in repeated conflict and you just can't seem to break the pattern, I want you to know that you're not alone in this. Working with a mom therapist can help both as an individual and in a partnership. We offer relational support to moms, partners, and couples. Head to momwell.com slash booking to book your free 15-minute virtual consult. That's momwell.com slash booking. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where Dr. Whitney Cazares of Modern Mummy Doc is joining us to talk about prioritizing the invisible load of motherhood. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learningcenter. To join the momwell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to momwell.